he was reading a dictionary. But uh, let's go over a few things, and I'll go a little slower than him. All right. Uh, yeah, we might not have time for that second video today. Difference between general revelation and specific revelation. We're going back to the start of the video, but this is a concept you've heard before. And if I think if you think through it a little bit, you'll come up with some ideas. The difference between general revelation and specific revelation. What's the difference? Good. Yes, and that means specific revelation is... Yeah, direct words from God, right? So uh, general revelation is basically we are perceiving through creation that a creator exists. And the Bible is clear that all men know that the creator exists because look at this miracle we're living in, all right? Think of the water cycle and how we eat and how we breathe and how, our, how that little pound of however much it weighs, of meat is pumping blood through your whole body even though you just ate donuts this morning or something. That, we know a creator exists, right? There's no reason for us to be alive other than that God is a powerful creator. But specific revelation is when you say open your Bibles to Romans 1. And then you look at the direct words from God. So that's just a basic concept that it's good that uh, you understand because I'm sure those terms will come up again. Get out your little spectrum of Bible translations there. What did you think of the different versions on Romans 12, 1 and 2? Wasn't that interesting? I thought that was a good passage to compare and contrast those, but what were your thoughts on how those read? No thoughts on how those read? Were any of them better than the others? Do you remember when he read Romans 12, 1 and 2 three times in three different translations? Yeah, definitely. When you got to the end, it, the message, it was like, yeah, you're waking, sleeping, walking around life. None of those words are in there. <laughs> so, yeah, uh, the Message Bible is a paraphrase. It's not a translation. Eugene Peterson, he mentioned his name. He's the author of the Message Bible. He's now dead. You can't say that anybody is the author of a Bible if it's a translation. For instance, we can't say the author of the ESV is this person's name or the author of the NASB is this person's name. The author of those Bibles is God, right? They're trying to faithfully translate what God had revealed to his people. But when you get to a paraphrase like the Message Bible, you have Eugene Peterson's name linked right to it because these are, I mean, I'm sure he was a grandpa. Grandpa's thoughts of how to explain it to kids. Is there a time and place for that? Sure. Should you call it a Bible? No right? Yes, it's, well, yeah, and it's a bad commentary, yes? <laughs> a very shallow commentary, yeah, basically, or devotional or something like that, but it's not a Bible. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yes, absolutely, uh, because when we're dealing in the realm of men's thoughts, there's no real limit Right, You just start thinking whatever you want to think. And so look at that uh, spectrum you have on there. And I said it disagreed with what he presented, and that's only slightly. At one point, he just rattled off a list, and he said in order from formal translations to more liberal translations. 
And his order doesn't look like this spectrum. And this spectrum is more accurate than what he listed off. I don't know if he meant to do that or not. But basically, the New American Standard Bible that we preach from is the most word for word from the Greek and Hebrew that you can get in English today. We use the New American Standard 1995. There's a 1977 that preceded it. And there's a 2020 that just came out. Uh, the 1995 is, in my opinion, still the best. Um, and so I believe, and it's pretty widely agreed upon that the New American Standard 95 is the closest you can get to word for word. Uh, but there are other good translations. You can look on there and see, okay, I sometimes use the ESV or I sometimes use the NIV or even NLT. Okay, that's okay. Just the right tool for the right job, like he said, is very important. So when you, when you come to church, a church service, and you know we're going to be preaching or teaching from the New American Standard, it's probably good that you have that in front of you. And I know there have been several people through the years who have asked me to help them find a good New American Standard Bible because they didn't have that translation with them and they wanted to have that. It makes sense. But for your personal devotions at home, maybe you'd rather look at a different translation. That's totally fine. But just be careful about going so far to the right on that chart. Okay? I uh, want to stay away from that. Dean. Yeah. Yes. And that Texas Receptus was patched together from six documents. Six. Now we have thousands. Right? So, to put that in perspective, you know, they had the best with them, but that's all they had. It's not like they rejected a whole bunch and just focused on six. That's all. They had six. That's what they had. Well, now, I mean, archaeology, of course, is going on 24-7, 365 around the world. And as they dig things up and find more manuscripts, you know, that's to our advantage, isn't it? It helps us get a more accurate Bible over time. Uh, not that now much will change. We've found thousands. It would take thousands more to change anything significantly, but it is to our advantage that we find more and more manuscripts. Um, and there's some interesting stuff going on in that world right now, but uh, it's kind of over my head, so I can't really get into all the details of that. Um, but speaking of manuscripts, um, let's talk about the canonization process for a moment. Um, canonization. Can you tell me what that word means? Canonization. It has nothing to do with shooting big heavy balls. It has nothing to do with shooting with a camera. Okay. Canonization. Well, canon, that word means standard or ruler. Okay. So when you think of measurements, figuring something out about what is appropriate, that's, you're using canon to determine the boundaries of something. Okay. When we talk about canonization in the Christian world, we're talking about saying that this book, this letter, is inspired from God. It is a part of the Bible. So, for instance, uh, think of the last book that you read outside of your Bible. Maybe you read a fiction book. Maybe you read a Christian book that written by a, a pastor or somebody. You wouldn't conclude that and say, ooh, that's canon. That should be added to our Bible. I hope you wouldn't. Okay. Uh, however, you read the book of First Peter, like we're studying on Wednesday nights, and you say, yeah, that's speaking to my heart. That's God. That's canon. That's Bible. And what had happened early on in the church is you had the Old Testament that was passed on from Israel. They, through Israel, God gave us the Old Testament. And the church then had apostles and prophets who were also writing Scripture and circulating their scripture. 
So Paul, writing to the Galatians, writes to the churches of Galatia. Not just one church, but to multiple churches. He didn't write a bunch of different copies of the letter. He wrote one letter to multiple churches. He sends that letter off. It arrives at one of the churches in that region. They make a copy for themselves or uh, however they did it and pass the letter on. And so then that letter went on to the other churches and copies and copies and copies were made. And over time, you have many copies being made. Also over time, with all these apostles' letters and all the copies of them, you have people coming in who are also claiming to write Scripture, who aren't apostles, and saying that God is speaking to them, and they also have inspired messages from God. Now, what do you do? Aren't you glad you live at this day and age? Can you imagine living then, trying to figure all these things out? So they had to come up with some sort of rule of what is Scripture and what is not. And so the things that he listed off, he listed five things. One is written by an apostle or a disciple of an apostle. That was their first rule. Okay. Secondly, someone who was nearest to the actual events. So someone coming along in 150 A.D. and talking about a first-hand account of the death of Christ from over a hundred years before, naturally be skeptical of that, right? Because they're not near to that event. Um, acceptance from a broad region of churches. You know, the, the church spread early on. You had missionaries going different places, churches being planted all over. And as these letters went around, and they all were attesting to the same, saying, yeah, this is from God. Well, that's a good sign. Fourth, orthodox, meaning it doesn't teach heresy. So, for instance, the Old Testament is very clear. There is but one God. So if a letter came out and said, oh, actually... There are thousands of gods, and here are their names. Yeah, easy to reject that one, right? To put a stamp on it, says rejected, and you move it along. It has to be orthodox. And then fifthly, and this is the strangest one, it, it feels like Scripture. That was the fifth rule that they had. Now, that's an interesting thing, because we don't want to put any stock in our feelings. However, we know that there's only one Holy Spirit, isn't there? And He dwells within each of God's people. And we can come together in unity on things. Ephesians 4, there's one faith, one uh, baptism, one spirit, one God and Father of all. We have great unity. And in that early church, it seems as though God used Christian unity to affirm the canon of Scripture. Now, from God's perspective, was it ever a question of what was inspired and what was not from God's perspective? No, he inspired it, right? God knows what he inspired and what he didn't inspire. But from man's perspective, there was a question for a time, wasn't there? There was a discovery. So God revealed the canon, and it was never a mystery to him. It was always said. It was always totally complete. It was always given to man in a settled way from God's perspective. Yet from man's perspective, there was a discovery process. Man had to discover this canon that God revealed, and we trust that God was faithful in doing that, and he gave us exactly what he wanted us to have. And what you also had in the early church, not the wolves, but the sheep, among the early church, you didn't have anybody claiming to write new scripture um, among the sheep. It was always the wolves who would come in and try to lead the sheep astray. And so um, as God's sheep were together, they didn't have people at that time claiming, 
well, here's more to the Bible. I know that we've said that these are the books, but let's tack on this book because this church over here in this area said that they got a special message for everybody. That wasn't the case. We see a lot of that today, a lot of people claiming to speak directly from God, but that wasn't going on among the churches at that time. It was just wolves who would come in. And as early as 170 A.D., we have a list. It's called the Miratorian Canon. There's a list that's been discovered through our archaeology that lists out the New Testament books, saying these are the ones from God, as early as 170 A.D., which I think is quite remarkable. That's less than 100 years after Revelation was written. Revelation was written sometime 90 or after 90 A.D. And so to have, you know, 80 years later, something like that, a list, I think that's pretty remarkable. It's a very interesting world of study, but when you think critically about where your Bible came from, you get into this type of conversation, and it's often quite mysterious to us. It will always be mysterious in certain ways, but we can have confidence that God is sovereign and that God preserves what it is He wants us to have, doesn't He? He doesn't give it to us. He doesn't give something to us and say, okay, I'm hands off now. Let's see if you guys do well with it. We know that there's a certain church in Utah that teaches such a thing. But that is not what God does. They also teach that he does that with salvation. That is not what God does. Okay, God is sovereign and faithful and good, isn't he? And he's very involved. Thoughts on that? Yes. I believe it was. There may be an exception on Second Peter, like Second Peter and Jude, like some of those smaller books toward the back. Second Peter, Jude, maybe... Revelation, because those were the often disputed ones in the early church. But I know that the Meritorian Canon had most, if not all, of, yeah, that's pretty amazing. And I believe it was 168 AD, but I don't know for sure. And it's M-U-R-A-T-U-R-I-N, something like that, Meritorian. Well, when we find a new manuscript in biblical archaeology terms, we know that we're not finding the original. I mean, it's just, number one, it would be probably impossible to verify if the original was the original. Number two, it's just extremely unlikely that you're finding an original. So when you find a copy, and again, the luxury we have in living in this day and age, when you find a copy, you can compare it to the thousands of copies that we have and see if it's something that's just totally made up, if it's gone way off the rails, or if this was a copyist who was legitimately trying to copy what was handed down to him. And so that's the process they go through when they discover a manuscript, is they see you know, what region it's from, because you have the Alexandrian, the Byzantine, and the Western texts. You find it from those regions. You can track its textual family based on perhaps some hints that they might find in the copy. And they can determine pretty easily, because of all the texts we have, was this a legit copy or not? So we have, in the year 2021, we have a lot of privileges in that world. Early on, it was much more difficult. Lizzie, did you have a thought or a question? Yeah, so the end of John 7 into John 8, like the first 10 verses or so of John 8, you have the woman caught in adultery passage. Remember Jesus is riding on the ground, and he who was without sin uh, cast the first stone. We all remember such a story, right? It's just a dramatic, wonderful story. The earliest 
version of that story that we have, I believe, is after the year 1000. Maybe it's in the 900s, but it's after the year 1000. Based on all the manuscripts that we have, it seems as though that story was added by someone in the stream of copying texts and that that's not original. The same thing with the end of Mark 16. In Mark 16, Jesus says, go out and preach to all of creation and you'll pick up snakes and they'll bite you and you'll be okay. You'll drink poison and you'll be okay. Again, that doesn't show up until about a thousand years after Jesus lived. We don't see it in our earliest and best text. In 1 John 5, 7, I'm, I'm curious, does anyone have a King James version? King James? Okay, I think, it, I think it's still the New King James. Go to 1 John. So toward the back of the Bible. 1 John 5, 7, and the rest of you also go to 1 John 5, 7. Let me show you something. And don't let this shock you. This is not hidden knowledge. It's stuff that gets discussed all the time. There are all kinds of resources I could point you to. 1 John 5, 7. And let's hear it from uh, the New King James first, and that'll tell us if uh, it's retained this. Robin, if you've got it, go ahead. Now that is an amazing verse on the Trinity. 1 John 5.7. That sums it up. Read it one more time, Robin. 1 John 5.7. I mean, just think of how amazing this is for our doctrine of the Trinity. Okay, now Roy, read for me what you got for 1 John 5, 7. Okay, now what is up with that? <laughs> Those read differently. So your three that you just read are the Spirit, the water, and the blood. And Robin, your three are... Okay, now isn't that interesting? Let me tell you something about 1 John 5, 7. Uh, from the New King James and the King James. Uh, we'll just focus on the King James for now. The King James Bible, as Dean mentioned earlier from the video Todd Friel mentioned, the King James Bible was translated from the Texas Receptus. Those six documents that they had to patch together a Greek New Testament, one cohesive Greek New Testament from six different manuscripts. An amazing thing. First time it had been done. Erasmus is the name of the guy who kind of head, headed that up at the time. Erasmus was Catholic, a Roman Catholic. Erasmus believed in the Trinity. Erasmus also saw an opportunity with that verse, 1 John 5, 7, to translate it in a way that favors the Trinity. And so the way he added his own little flavor to it was by saying there are three that testify in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit, or the Holy Ghost in the King James. The King James being based off his Greek patchwork, it contains that in the English King James. And then the New King James being based off the King James, it also has it. But in any other translation you look at, it won't read that way. Now what you can do if you get into Greek is you can have a Greek New Testament like this that I have in my office. And you can see when there are issues with certain texts. So here I am in 1 John, and look at 1 John 7, and okay, it's got a big footnote here. And you can go through and you can see 
where the issues are. Uh, it will say, here's this reading of the text. And here are the manuscripts in which it's found. And then here's this other reading of the text, and here are the manuscripts that it's found in. And you say, well, which manuscripts do I trust? Well, you can pull out the apparatus they have in the front of the, the book, and you pull it out, and it lists off the different manuscripts, the notable ones. This isn't exhaustive. Look at all these different manuscripts, and it tells you, okay, this manuscript contains the Gospels. It's from the 3rd century. 3rd century. Early is good, right? We prioritize early. You go down to a good one like P46, a very important one. This contains Paul's letters, and it's from about 200, very early. And so if P46 is on the side of that reading, well, that gives it a lot of credibility. And you can go through and you can compare. Because God, even though He inspired the original writings of the New Testament, He did not inspire the copying process. He was faithful to preserve His Word, but every copy that was made was not as equally inspired as the original. If that was the case, we would only have perfect copies. But we don't, do we? Yeah. You could. The only reason they're true to the King James Version is because it's public domain and they don't have to request access from a Christian publisher to use it. I mean, if they wanted to use the... I mean, they know that the New American Standard is a better translation than the King James. But the Lockman Foundation, who owns the New American Standard Bible, would never give them permission to use it in their church. So they can't. Uh, Thomas Nelson, who owns the New, New King James. Thomas Nelson would never give them permission to use it. Zondervan owns the NIV. They would never get permission. So that's the only reason why they use it. If they want to bring out some mumbo-jumbo about it's a better English translation... There are 10,000 reasons why that's false. The, at the end of the day, the only reason they use it is because their church can only use that one because it's public domain. And they don't even believe it fully. That's it. That's it. Yeah, right. Which there are some better English versions that do. The 1977 NASB still had the these and nows, and the revised standard version did also, so... But those are owned by Christian publishers, and they would never get permission to use those. We are out of time. That went really fast. Uh, there was more to say. Maybe we can pick up there next time, okay? Why don't I dismiss us in prayer? Father, we thank you so much for the day you've given us and our opportunity to learn, to grow together, to understand more about your word. We want to revere your word. We want to treasure your word. We want to handle it rightly, that we would not set aside discernment for the sake of just feeling good, but instead we would press into the truth and honor you with the way that we handle the Word of God. Lord, we thank you that you have been faithful to us to communicate to us, to sovereignly preserve your Word, and to give us a message that will touch our hearts through the power of your Spirit. Lord, we love you. We thank you. We ask your blessing on the rest of this day. In Jesus' name, amen.